I know, it makes you want to clap, doesn't it? It's okay. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome out there online. Uh, Pastor Paphras and your congregation in Tanzania. Do you guys know we have a sister congregation in Tanzania? Welcome, you guys out there. They translated into Swahili as they go. Um, it's so fun. The things, you know, when you talk about um, all the stuff that happened during COVID, who here went through a tough time during COVID, giving giving up things and struggling to find things the way, you've, you know, that you expected them to be, and we're still dealing with it. But one of the cool things that came out of it is our, uh, we had to up our game as far as live streaming, and so we got new cameras, we got some new technology, and we got, we didn't get a new Jeremy, but we brought him to new places to, to help us. Uh, with new things, and and one of the benefits of that is that now there are places all over the world that are watching us live right now, or will later on tape, and it's just, it's an amazing thing that God has done out of that, the enemy intended that to, for evil and to take us down, and God has used that to, to bring us to new places, and so it's just amazing to be able to spread the gospel of Jesus all over the world from here in our just, our humble little home. Um, so, but welcome, you guys. If if you're new here and you didn't get a chance to, uh, to either meet me or, or meet my wife Gabe up here in the front or any of our staff, please take a few minutes and hang around afterwards. Um, we're going to be here for a long time after, um, and we'd love to meet you and just say hi and catch up. If you haven't been here in a while, maybe, but we know you, stick around, and we'd love to be able to catch up a little bit. We are in, uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you haven't been here for a while, I feel like I need to kind of get you caught up a little bit. We're calling it Jesus the Servant Messiah, and the idea is each one of the Gospels um, talks about aspects of Jesus Christ and his ministry from sort of a different perspective. They kind of have a different aspect of Jesus that they want to highlight in the Gospels, but Mark, I love the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus uh, and and his servanthood. You know, the things that he was able to do, it talks extensively about miracles and healing and driving out demons and all the sorts of things that he did. But it's not, the idea wasn't to call attention to Jesus, saying, look at me, look at, look at Jesus and, all, and how great he is. In fact, he does everything he can to downplay that, and he's trying to point everybody to the source of that power. And so that's what we want to do as we go through this. Jesus Christ was able to perform these miracles because he is God incarnate. He is God with us, our Emmanuel. That's who he is. But he had the same power of the Holy Spirit that is now given to us, by which we can then go out in the world and do the very things. Jesus said, you can go out and do these things. You'll even do more and better things than I did. And it's only through that Holy Spirit that we have. So that's why I love the Gospel of Mark. It focuses very much on that. And also, Mark, is he's not very wordy. He tends to be very straightforward, and he'll talk about an amazing miracle and then just say, okay, moving on, now the next thing. And he doesn't expand on it. Um, I kind of like that about him. But in other ways, it doesn't paint the whole picture. And so I go back in, and I'll look at uh, Luke, or I'll look at Matthew, or I'll look at John, and I'll pull out a little bit of information that kind of illuminates the things that Mark is talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is where we are. Now, we're at the point in the Gospel of Mark where um, 
Jesus and his disciples have been traveling around the Galilee, again, doing miracles, driving out demons, all these sorts of things. They have, it's, it's nearing what we know as Passion Week, that final week of, of Jesus Christ uh, in the flesh here on earth before he is crucified. Um, and as we near that, then he starts the trek with his disciples, starts getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Um, he's gone up from Jericho. It's kind of a long and treacherous climb from Jericho up to where Jerusalem is. And they have arrived there. Um, we've seen a number of different things, but that's kind of where we're going to pick up. Um, last week, Pastor Gabe taught, and thank you, Pastor Gabe. Those of you who are here, I'm sure we're blessed by it. I was certainly by her teaching last week. But what she was teaching about, Jesus had gone into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and kind of created a little bit of a disruption to what was going on there. And he was having his authority questioned. And what he did is he turned the tables on them by teaching some parables. And the parables were directed right at the authorities that were there. Um, and they knew it. They knew it. And what Pastor Gabe taught, I love what she taught. They knew it. They heard the stories. They heard the parables. And they understood that he was pointing right at them. And yet somehow or another, they still said, well, not me. Must be that guy, but not me. So they fully understood it, but failed to internalize it and say, really? He's talking about me and what's in my heart. And that was such a, for me, that was such a, an illustration of what we often do. We know Jesus. We know the scriptures. We know the things that it says and the, and the precepts that it teaches. And somehow or another, we just go, well, that doesn't apply to me in my situation. But it's been going on forever. This parable that he was teaching them was, was designed to teach them that as as the Jewish people, as the, the designated keepers of the covenant of God, had failed to bear fruit. They had failed to bear fruit as they were intended to. And, and in fact, the parable that, that Pastor Gabe taught was about the vineyard and about the vineyard owner who then rented his vineyard to some people and they, how they had mistreated those that the vineyard owner represented by God, had, had uh, come to collect that fruit that he was due. And each time he sent somebody, and the person that he sent was abused, mistreated, and ultimately then he sends his son, saying, surely they won't abuse or kill my son. Surely he'll carry my authority. And in fact, they kill him. So remember, the vineyard owner represents God, and the tenants represented the Jewish religious establishment. We can call them the priests or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or any number of people who represent the establishment. The fact is they had been given trust over this holy, sacred covenant, and they had failed to take care of it. They had failed to recognize it in many ways, and in fact, they had defiled it. And remember the teaching we did on the fig tree. You heard teaching on Jesus curses the fig tree. Many of us have heard that. We taught on that a few weeks ago. Um, and the idea was he's not cursing the fig tree because it's not bearing fruit. He's cursing the fig tree because it had leaves and it looked, it had everything it needed to bear fruit, but it wasn't. And so that was a metaphor for Jerusalem itself. Like you have everything you need to bear fruit. You look like it, you talk like it, you walk like it, but you're not doing it. And so that's where that curse came from. So 
God asks us to bear fruit in accordance with the gifts that he has given us. He doesn't ask you to bear fruit that you're not intended to bear. He doesn't ask you to do things that he hasn't already equipped you or gifted you to be able to do. But for those gifts that he has given you, the equipment that he has given you, the ways that he has blessed you, he very much asks that we use that in the kingdom, for the service of the kingdom, and for his glory. John 15, 8 says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That's the idea. And so I want you to look at that, have that in your mind as we go through the teaching for today, because that's the idea. Bearing fruit in accordance with the gifts that you have been given. And remember when Jesus, the triumphal entry, We've all heard many teachings and heard so much. The triumphal entry of Jesus. He goes in to Jesus on the back of a colt, and then the crowd is singing Hosanna, and they're chanting, and they're putting down palm branches, and it's such this triumphant entry. And he goes in, and this is another thing where Mark differs a little bit from the others. Mark is the only gospel that documents Jesus came in, triumphal entry, he looks around, and he leaves. The other Gospels omit that part where he leaves and comes back the next day, and he gets right into business in them. They're both correct. It's just Mark goes into that other part. But when we see Jesus turn around and leave, he's kind of saddened by this. He's looked around at the temple that's been holy to him his whole life. It's been a special place his whole life. And he sees people trading, and he sees the money changers, and he sees all these things going on, and he's saddened. Because this beautiful, holy temple that is just a symbol of, of, Jerusalem, of the Jewish people and Judah and all these things. And it has been just become just normal. It's not even a special thing to them anymore. And worse yet, the priests who were charged with keeping it holy, with taking care of it and keeping it a sacred place, were complicit in defiling the temple and so Jesus is, he's saddened, and he leaves. And that's where we see on the way back to Jerusalem the next day, he curses that fig tree because he knows what he's walking into. Now, think about all these things. When you read a, a, a story or, or a chapter or an entire gospel in the Bible, there's always a common thread. It may look like it's a collection of random stories, and sometimes it really seems like that where we're talking about one thing and all of a sudden it completely shifts gear to something that doesn't seem to make sense. Whenever that happens, I want you to go back and reread everything that led up to that moment and then read a little bit beyond that. So that's called in context, right? We're not just pulling out one scripture or one small story. You're looking at the whole thread and what you're looking for is a common theme that ties it all together. Because there's very much a purpose. So my question, here's a question for you then. What is the common theme that has been running through the last few chapters of Mark that we've been talking about? Think about what that common theme is. Obviously, it's Jesus and his, and his servanthood. But it, more than that, is it, is it go and make disciples? That's what he's talking about, the common theme. Not really, Right? I mean, we know we're supposed to do that, but that's not the theme of this. Is it love God and love your neighbor? It's not really that either. I'm going to keep giving you choices. Is it hold true to the law? Okay, that's the one that gets all the answers. Everybody knows that's not it. 
Is it bear fruit to the glory of God? It's bear fruit to the glory of God. So as I go into this section today, as we talk about it, we're in um, Mark chapter 12. It's going to be a short section. It's verses 13 through 17. It's commonly called the question of taxes. Your translation may have a number of different ways that it's, that it's broken out, um, but the question of taxes. So as we look at this, as we go through this teaching today, I want you to think of it in context of that idea of bearing fruit to the glory of God, because this continues that theme. So remember um, when they were at the temple, as Pastor Gabe taught, who was questioning Jesus? Anybody remember from last week when, when Pastor Gabe was teaching? Who was questioning Jesus? I'll, I'll give you a hint. I'll give you more than a hint. I'll give you the answer. Mark eleven twenty seven. Some of us haven't had enough coffee yet, so I'm just going to give you the answers. Mark eleven twenty seven says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple areas. Talking about Jesus and his disciples. The chief priests, the scribes, and elders came to him. So we have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders And they were questioning Jesus. Now, they were questioning Jesus on authority, the authority, like where's your authority to do the things and to teach and say the things you're doing? They were questioning him on authority and protocol of the temple because that's what they cared about. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, that was their their wheelhouse, and that was their territory. And so they were questioning Jesus on that. Now, Herod... King Herod and Rome, Caesar and Rome, could care less about the little squabbles that went on in the temple. They pretty much just let it happen and said, that's, that's a Jewish problem. You guys figure it out amongst yourselves and don't bother us with that kind of trouble. So they didn't really care. Now here's a, a picture that I have. I just found a painting of kind of what that scene in the temple looked like. I don't know how well you can see that. You've got Over on the left, seated here, you've got the priests and the scribes and the elders, um, and they're just, they're kind of, they're spent. They've they've tried questioning Jesus, they've tried trapping Jesus, and they're they're not really getting anywhere. So they're like, I don't know, let's sit down and regroup. So they sit down and regroup. Now, I don't know if the scene looked like that, but some of us learn visually, and it kind of just helps us get our minds around it. So here's the thing, it's the, the priests, the scribes, the elders, they're kind of at the end of their rope. Now they go for a different tact. They're like, okay, there's got to be another way that we can get Jesus. You can drop that down off of there. What they're going to try and do is find a way to get Rome involved, get the horsepower of Rome involved into ending this problem that is Jesus Christ. And so what they're going to do is they're going to try and label Jesus as an insurrectionist. They're going to switch from the religious problem. Now we have a political problem. And that's going to get Rome involved, and that's going to get their attention. So Luke's gospel actually kind of illuminates this and gives us an idea of what's happening. So it's exactly the same time. It's just detail that Luke has given us. Luke 20, verses 19 and 20. And I'll read it for you. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him at that very hour, and yet they feared the people. For they were aware that he had spoken the parable against them. And so they watched him closely and sent, listen to this, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. So they're trying, they're like, we've, we've done all we can do. Let's go over here. And they send 
spies into the crowd to see if they can trap Jesus. Now listen, I'm going to read this whole section in Mark, and just listen in your mind's eye, listen kind of to the scene that's going on, and then we'll go back and we'll take it apart. It's only a handful of verses. Mark 12, 13 to 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're truthful and do not care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Are we to pay or not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. How many people have heard a teaching on that or a dozen at various times? Very commonly, very commonly taught. But let me talk to you about what's going on here. If you were, at that time, if you were one of the first, maybe first century people to read this account, or maybe you were there and saw what was happening, the very first verse in there, Mark 12, 13, would have kind of set the stage in your brain as far as what was going on here. Mark 12, 13, we've got it on screen. It says, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Remember, Luke calls them spies. So they probably came in some sort of disguise. I doubt they came in robes and very official looking. You're not tricking anybody or trapping anybody if you're like that. So they probably came in some sort of disguise. Now, Matthew's gospel actually adds another detail and says that they weren't Pharisees, they were disciples of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, if you were a Pharisee in Jerusalem, you were probably a big deal. Everybody kind of knew who you were, and you wanted to make sure everybody knew who you were. The thing is, they had, the Pharisees had their own disciples, their own students that they were teaching. So they couldn't go themselves, they could send their students. And Jesus and the disciples may not recognize who these students are. So we've got this collection of, of students in there, and they're trying to trap Jesus. So then the other part, the question, who are the Herodians? Does anybody know? I know some of you do. Who are the Herodians? No big surprise, right? Herod. It's got something to do with Herod, right? So the Herodians are actually not a religious sect. They're more of a political party. They're more of a political party that tries to kind of bridge the gap between Rome and Herod, and, or, or Rome and Caesar, and, and then Herod, and then the Jewish people. They're kind of trying to be right in the middle of there. And the Herodians are, are they're Jews. It's made up completely of Jews, but they are very loyal to Herod, Herod Antipas in this case. Um, very, very loyal to him. And again, they're more political than they are uh, religious. And Herod, again, in turn, who has been placed in as ruler of Judea, he is a subject of Rome and Caesar. So he's very loyal to Rome. And so then by definition, the Herodians are loyal to Rome through that way. The Herodians, this is what's interesting about this. The Herodians were actually very much in opposition to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a party also, but they were very much a religious 
religious quasi-political party, and they butt heads all the time. Because the Herodians were all about, we, we don't care what happens from the religious aspect. We just want somebody from the lineage of Herod the Great to be on the throne. We would love to, to restore the rule of, of, of the Herod dynasty to this whole region. That's what they're all about. And the Pharisees are very much about, we want a descendant of David on the throne over Judea. So they were just at their basic core level. They were in opposition to each other. But have you ever heard the the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? So in this case, both of them have a big problem with Jesus and his disciples. So they are, they're teaming up in this case. And so if you heard that first statement, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in a statement that would have meant a lot to you at that time. Okay, we have these two enemy groups coming together to try and trap Jesus. That's a problem. So that's where we are. And the, the, the intent of this was to catch Jesus making some kind of a statement or doing something that was in opposition to Herod and or Caesar so that they could label him as an insurrectionist. And that was immediately punishable by death. There probably wouldn't even be a trial. They would just take him away. So that's what they're trying to do. And so they're, again, both groups, they're probably in some sort of a disguise, or at the very least, they're just laying low. They're not advertising who they are. And they're in the crowd. And the first thing they do is start with some flattery. I want you to, this is just a lesson for all of us. If somebody comes up to you and immediately starts flattering you, Take a step back, okay, and be a little bit on your guard. They're not going to trick Jesus in this, though. Mark 12, 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Okay, pure pure flattery. It's true, but they're just trying to flatter him, maybe get him to let his guard down. He's not going to. And then they just sneak in this question at the end. Is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, again, Jesus isn't going to be caught with his guard down. He's not going to say anything that that is not true and anything that he doesn't intend to say. A little flattery is not going to do it. Remember, Jesus is, is all God. He's all deity and he's all human. So he's been there from the beginning. And so he would have known very well what David meant when he wrote Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 35 to 37, David said this, And they remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer, but they flattered him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful with his covenant. That was about flattery. And Paul said this. Now, Paul said this after the episode we're talking about, but Paul said this about, about flattery. Romans 16, 18. For such people are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Jesus is not having any of their flattery, and and we always need to be careful with that. Charles Spurgeon. Anybody heard the name Charles Spurgeon? He said this. Now, he said it about pastors, but it applies to anyone. He said this. It's always best not to know nor wish to know what is being said about you, either by friends or foes. Those who praise us are probably just as much mistaken as those who abuse us. (laughs) Keep that in mind next time somebody leads with flattery. 
Um, and maybe sometimes it's warranted, but be, beware. Now, they might have, they were trying to be tricky, they were trying to be in disguise, but they might have well just shouted their plan from the rooftops because Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. So back now to the question at hand. Let's talk about this. Mark 12, 14 again. The second half, is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? So what the poll tax was, remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about the temple, there was a temple tax. And if you went to the temple, you had to pay a temple tax and you had to pay it in shekels, which was a whole complication that meant that you had to have a money changer to do the exchange for you. But there's another tax. Just like today, every time you turn around, there's another tax hitting you. And so there's a poll tax. And the poll tax was on every subject of the Roman Empire. Okay, If you were a subject of Rome um, and lived in their empire, you had to pay a poll tax. And it's one denarius per person. Okay, That's what it was. And the poll tax, the, the word poll tax translates in Greek. I don't know if it's New Testament. Chances are, if you're translating it, you're translating from the Greek. So that's what we look at here. Poll tax in Greek is the word kinesos. And what it literally means is tribute money. It means tribute money. And even to further break that apart, it's the current coin of tribute. Now, here's what that meant. In this case, uh, Emperor Tiberius was on the throne in Rome. And so each emperor, every time, each emperor would mint their own coins. And um, I'm going to show you a picture of it here in just a minute. Not yet. But they would mint their own coins, and their coins would have their picture on it. So they would go into circulation, and they would, they would just be part of the circulation. George, you collect old coins, and they have various people on them. But the current coin of tribute, if you're going to pay your poll tax, it had to be with a coin, with the face of the current emperor. So you couldn't pay your poll tax to uh, Tiberius's Rome with a, with a coin that had any other emperor's face on it. You would have to then go and find that, and that was the only one that was suitable for paying that tribute. Um, in this case, again, it was Tiberius. Now, here's the problem. When they ask him that question, he's, they're trying to trap him. If he says no, or let me go the other way first. If he said yes, is it lawful or should we pay a poll tax to Caesar? If he said yes, it would look like he was siding with Rome. And the people who were overtaxed to the hilt already would not like Jesus. They would well, we don't agree with you either then. We thought we did, but we don't because you're all pro-tax apparently. And it would have alienated a lot of the people that were there listening. Now, Conversely, if he said no, then immediately the Herodians and the Pharisees would run back and they would tell Herod, look, he's, he's inciting insurrection here. He's telling them they don't have to pay their taxes. Jesus would probably be arrested before the end of the day if that was the case. So they continue their questioning. Gee, they're, they're going down this line. Mark 12, 15, are we to pay or not to pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Genius answer. Because he can't say yes or no. He's going to answer them. But he can't say yes or no. He'll be trapped either way. He knew they were testing him. But here's the thing. When he says, why are you testing me? It's not for his benefit. Like, 
tell me what you're up to. He knows. He wants them to think about it. Just about every opportunity you see Jesus interacting with somebody who is either about to sin or, or contemplating that, he points out and wants them to think about, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? I want this to be intentional because if you're going to do it, you need to think about it. That's what he's doing. He's causing them by asking that question. They're going to think about it for a second. May not stop them, but they're thinking about it. So now, somebody brings him a denarius. Probably one of the Herodians most likely had uh, the proper coin on him. We're guessing. Mark 12, 16. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Okay, again, it was, it was probably Tiberius's. Here's a picture of what a, a denarius looks like. That is an actual Roman denarius from this time right here. That is Tiberius's face on the left-hand side. Um, you can see that. And it says, the inscription on it says, uh, I'm going to read it to you so I don't blow it here because I don't read Latin. It says, Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus. That's what it says on the head's side. Now, the flip side, um, that image right there is probably Livia. That's Tiberius' mother. Most likely, that's him. She's holding a staff, and she's holding a, a leaf or a branch in the other hand. And what it says on there, it says, Pontifus Maximus. That's what it says on the back side. That is really interesting. Another interesting note, you can buy one of these today. They're out there. If you go to Jerusalem or you talk to an antiquities dealer, you can buy one. They're about $4,500 for one, if you can find one. <clears throat> but they're out there. They're still out there today, and they're struck, they're struck in usually in pure silver. Here's a side note, a little trivia note for you. This isn't, thus saith the Bible. This isn't anything like that. It's just interesting to me. Anybody read the Left Behind series of books? I, they're... It's not what I get all my theology from. I want to be clear about that. But it's entertaining. It's entertaining, and it has some interesting points. If you have, you remember that the religious leader that was installed, the one-world religion leader, what was his name? Pontifus Maximus. That's where, they, that's where they get that. Now, here's another interesting thing. Revelation 17 talks about this great prostitute and one-world religion, it talks extensively as it's talking about these bold judgments. So read Revelation 17 if you kind of want to know about that. But here's an interesting thing about one-world religion. Again, I'm on the sidebar part. This isn't thus saith the Lord. Um, in sometime this year, it's not officially open yet, but it's completed, is a thing, it's in Abu Dhabi. In the, in the UAE, and it's called the Abrahamic Family House. And the Abrahamic Family House was built in the UAE. It was, it was completed sometime earlier this year, um, and here's what it says about it. It says, the cultural landmark in the UAE capital, which includes a synagogue, a church, and a mosque, is meant to be a beacon of understanding and peaceful coexistence. Both Pope Francis and Grand Imam Ahmed El-Tayeb co-dedicated this. And the idea is one world religion. 
And that building exists right now in the UAE. I don't think they're hiring. You can go on their website and they're hiring. Um, So it's about to open, but it hasn't. And here's why I point this out to you. You look at things like Revelation, you read scriptures, even like we're teaching today, and you may go, oh, that's an interesting story. These things are happening and these things are unfolding in front of our eyes. Beware. This is why it's important. This is why the Lord impressed on me so much to know your scripture. Teach scripture, read scripture, every single service, know it, read it, learn it. Because when you see things like that and you see the advertisement is why wouldn't three of the world's major religions come together under the umbrella of Abraham and just coexist and and be peaceful in one world religion? If you didn't know your scripture or hadn't been taught it, you may not understand that that is one of the steps towards the return of Jesus. Now, I'm not afraid of it. I'm not worried about it, but I'm aware of it. And that's all I ask anybody. Be aware of what's happening in the world and its relation to what you read in Scripture. All right, enough of the sidebar. Let's get back to the Scripture here. I think I'm more or less on time. Back to the Scripture. Mark 12, 16. Okay, they're bringing him. They're bringing him one of those denarius. They brought him one. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Okay, now Jesus answers them this. Mark 12, 17. And Jesus said to them, Pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Okay, now depending on your translation, I don't know if you're following along, um, some say pay, some use the word render. Okay, the common thing is render to Caesar, right? That's what we've commonly heard. But that's just a translational word. It's give back, pay, render. It's all the same thing. We look at the root of that word in Greek, and it's significant. And that word is apodidomy. Okay? It's not some sort of an operation. Apodidomy means to surrender or to give back. Okay? It means to surrender or give back. It's not, in other words, it's not a purchase. You're not buying something. You're paying back a debt. And that's important. Render to Caesar. Pay back your debt to Caesar with the things that are Caesar's, like the coin. But then pay back to God the debt that you owe him. Think about it in terms of that because that's what that means. So the fact that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, had to pay tribute to Caesar was as a result of their disobedience, their sin, their straying for the covenant, their defiling what God intended to be holy. Um, And they had been warned again and again and again. The prophets going back thousands of years had warned them that this was happening. They had had plenty of warning. But they couldn't change their course. Pastor Gabe last weekend taught, and go back and look at our website. You can look at the old archives. It's a great message on that parable of the tenants. Now, I want to be clear. A lot of people, when they read this section or when they teach this section, they teach it as Jesus is railing against government. He's railing against government, and he's saying, don't have anything to do with government. I want you to be entirely separate from government. That is not what he's teaching. He's not saying rebel against government. He's not saying don't have anything to do with it. In fact, all throughout Scripture, it says if you take advantage of what government offers, 
Does anybody here take advantage of what government offers? If you drove here on a road with stoplights, just an example, if you have water that comes to your house, the government provided those things. Now, God is over all governments, and so it all flowed through him. But if you take advantage of those things, we are obliged to submit to that government and to pay our taxes. Jesus never once says, don't do that. In fact, he teaches very much for it. But here's the thing. It's got to be not in opposition to God. Okay? Submitting to your authorities and participating in government, as long as it's not in opposition to God, that's, that's required of us. Here's the hard part, though. You can participate in government if you can do it without profaning the temple of God. And what's the temple of God today? It's you. The temple of God is in you today. Then it was a building, and it was being defiled by people doing all kinds of crazy things in the temple grounds. It was being defiled. That's why that physical building of the temple is no longer important. Now the temple of God resides in you. and That's why it's important to not defame that and not, not profane that. Jesus says, Scripture tells us that is, our lives should be dedicated first to Jesus and the kingdom of God. You can participate in government, absolutely, but your life should be dedicated to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. Remember that? That's from John 18. And Paul said that our citizenship is in heaven. He wrote that to the Philippians. Now back to our context here. Jesus had looked at what the temple had become and he was just saddened that it was no longer holy. He was saddened that it was no longer even suitable for what God had intended it to be. Jesus cursed the fig, or cursed the fig tree because it had the appearance of fruit but no fruit. Then in his righteous anger, remember, he went through and he purged the temple. Of, of the money changers, everybody who is defiling it. Now, Jesus teaches that the coin belongs to Caesar because his image is written on it. Remember, whose image is on that? Then give it to Caesar. Here's the question. What image is stamped on you? What image is stamped on you? The image of God. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The coin may belong to Caesar. Your money, your things may belong to somebody else, but your life and your body belong to God. Remember that. 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? I just said that. That's where it comes from. I didn't make that up. I know some of you thought, that guy is smart. And I am, but not in this case. Whom you have from God. Let me read it again, because this is serious. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. 
So what that means, I'm just going to wrap it up. Everything that you do, everything you write, everything you say, everything you think should be first and foremost for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom and the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. If you wouldn't say it to Jesus, you shouldn't say it to anyone else. Again, the common thread of all this is just this. You are holy and set apart. You are special. You are a royal priesthood. Why? Because God says you are. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful that you don't give up on us. You don't give up on me despite how many times um, I get myself into things that are not honoring to you. I might say or do things that are not honoring to you and you never give up on me. Father, I pray that I would use my life, use my life to give you glory. I repent of any of those things that I say, think, do, or project to others that do not give you glory because you have said who I am. I'm not who the world says I am. I am who you say I am. And if there's anyone here today that is struggling to believe that you are holy because God says you are, then I want to come against that lie right now in the name of Jesus. The enemy is the author of lies, Satan. And he will tell you that the person next to you or that person over there, they're holy and they are a temple of God, but you are not. You've failed too many times. You've done too many things. And so maybe when you get your act together, come back and maybe then. But that's not what the covenant of Jesus Christ says. The blood shed on the cross for you says that you are holy, says that you are reconciled. And so, Father, I just pray that everyone here would receive that word, would receive that truth, and that we would be able to walk out into this world and reflect the light, not curse the dark, but reflect the light that comes from your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take time right now to do communion. We're going to have two stations. Um, Gabe and I will be at this station, and I completely forgot to ask somebody to man the second station. Would you guys be willing? Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, call an audible. When we take communion, this has been this has been an amazing weekend for me personally so far, and it's just going to get better in the next couple days. Um, I've got two weddings that I'm performing, one this afternoon, one tomorrow. And right before service, we got to do an amazing uh, engagement betrothal kind of a, of a prayer out here, out back. It was It was beautiful. But one of the things that the Lord impressed on me, and I knew this from a long time ago, but he's brought it to the forefront. When a couple gets engaged, they call it a betrothal. And one of the things that they did in ancient times, going all the way back to Jesus, was that they, um, obviously the, the groom would offer 
goats or whatever property, whatever it was, to the family and to the bride to prove that he was worthy of that. But then the father, typically, or the bride, had to then approve that and say, yes, I agree. And the way that they signified whether they agreed with that and accepted that offer was that the groom would place a cup of wine. And they called that the cup of the covenant. And if the bride went and drank of the cup of the covenant, that meant that she accepted that offer as worthy. And so when we take communion, I want you to think about this. Jesus offers you the cup of the covenant because he's paying the price for you. He says that you're worthy. And all you have to do, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything. He has already declared you worthy. And the cup of the covenant is you just saying, yes. Yes, I accept that. And that's all we have to do. That pays the price. That makes you holy before God. That covers your sins, the ones you've already committed, the ones you will, the ones you're thinking about right now. And it reconciles you to God. The bread, the body represents his broken body broken on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve. And he took it upon himself and offered you the covenant in return. So as you take communion, we'll come down the middle and you can go to either station, the right or the left side. I want you to think about that as you do it. Think about your acceptance and what that means. When you take that covenant, that means, yes, the price you paid for me is sufficient. It is more than enough. And I accept that. And I will live my life in accordance with that offer. That's what you're saying when you take communion. And if you can say that in your heart, then we invite you, member or not, first time or not, you need to be a follower of Jesus and you need to accept that covenant, that offer. Then we invite you to take communion with us. We also have the station over here. If you don't want wine or you'd like to serve yourself against the window, that's juice and bread and crackers, and you can do that. But otherwise, we just invite you now as we worship on to just go ahead and start moving about. And if you just need to sit and pray for a while, do that. All right, amen. Thank you, guys.